Amen. Be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. Uh, thank you for praying for me and my family. Um, I'm alive. Uh, it looked close a couple of times last week, sick as I've been in probably about 20 years. Uh, but I do have a, a new granddaughter who was born on Monday around 7.30 p.m. Thank you. It was, it was really hard on me, and I appreciate y'all's prayers. Uh, and uh, anyway, so my, um, she was six pounds, five ounces, and about 21 inches long, 20 inches long. And she's got little pterodactyl arms. They're a little bit longer than her body. Not, not quite. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I went to see her on Wednesday, and, uh, and I think she likes me. Uh, and so uh, it will work out. Uh, and so thank you for praying. Continue to pray for Ashley, my daughter-in-law. She recovers. It was harder on her than all the rest of us. And so uh, I'd appreciate your prayers in that. So thank you for doing that. All right. As we look at Ephesians chapter 4, let me remind you, we're hitting a transition in the book of Ephesians, right? So uh, chapters 1 through 3, in large part, are what we call indicatives. That means Paul is unpacking the theological foundation, all of the good things that God has done for us in Christ, right? Remember, the book kind of breaks up into in Christ and in the world. And so in Christ, we have a host of things which is that confession that we read is a large portion of them, which is where he's actually blessing God for all that he's done for us in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we can't lose that. And so often I think we do, because he's going to start telling us some stuff, some ways in which we ought live in the world. And some of us get a little nervous whenever there's an imperative given, right? Especially an imperative divorce from the gospel. You should always actually get nervous if there's an imperative given uh, that suggests that you can do it outside of the necessity of, of the, the full work of the gospel, the full work of the Trinity, the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Christ, and God. So good that you would get nervous, but let me remind you, that's one of the points of the, of the way in which we shape our liturgy. Before you have heard the word one from me, the pastor, you have heard the gospel pronounced. You've been, you've been reminded that God is a good father. You've been reminded that Jesus is an excellent son and that you are beloved as a son or daughter of the God most high if you are redeemed in him and that you need the Holy Spirit before I ever say anything. So always keep that in mind as you hear some of these things because you can hear it in the wrong key if you're not careful. You can also hear it in the wrong key because you can think, well, if I do these things, if I accomplish them, then God will love me more. Is that true? Is God ever going to love you more than he loves you right now in Christ? The answer is no. However, as you uh, obey what God calls us to do in the imperatives, what you will do is grow in your understanding of how deeply he loves you. Remember, this was part of Paul's prayer last week right? That we would grow with all of the saints. And remember, he said it takes strength from the Holy Spirit. If you set out to try to understand the love of God in your own intellect, in your own strength, in your own power, what would happen? You would fail. You can't do it. That's good news, actually. And so with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can, and the strengthening of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to stare at, uh, pontificate on, reflect on, and live in and live out of something that is changing not just the world, but eternity. And all that power dwells in you. Not for you to use as you choose, but for you to participate in as God has called. And that's really the rest of Ephesians is going to be his call to us. Now, this section that we're going to read, verses 1 through 10, really is the introduction or preamble or foundation for everything that he's going to say after, for where he gets specific about some ways in which we can live out our union with Christ in and for the life of the world. So here's what I want you to get from this sermon this morning. We are called to walk together in the world, and all those words are very important, right? We're, we are called. That means God has said, I'm asking you all 
together. No, no individuals. He's not looking for superstars. There's no hierarchy in the sense that he loves anybody more than anybody else. There's no hierarchy in the sense that there is giftings that are more important than anybody else's. Let me ask you this. If we don't have any volunteers to keep the children's ministry, how does that now affect me as a speaker? Radically. Right? It's hard enough to pay attention as it is. It's hot in here. I see y'all fanning like we're outside at a polo club or something. I understand I'm hot natured. Uh, and and I, we don't get to control the temperature. I wish we did. Uh, they don't let us do that. And so, uh, so y- you understand that if, if other people don't serve and do what they do, if we don't have greeters, if what you are met with from the time you walk in from the parking lot is hostility or blank stares, how does that affect what we try to do here, I can't overcome it. If, if you all don't seek to build community with one another, no amount of preaching in the world is going to hold people, especially at this level. Like if we were a church of six or 700, it doesn't become quite as important, right? But that's not who we are. We're a community church. And if you don't work to build relationships with each other, then sooner or later people will begin to matriculate away Because again, uh, you can podcast good speaking. You don't have to go through all this, right? You can do it in the very air condition of your own home where you can control the temperature. Now, it's not the same thing as attending worship, so don't hear me say that. That Worship is a very unique event where God meets with his people and he doesn't necessarily do that on podcast. Uh, You heard it here first. And so we are called to walk together. Now, this next part's really important. Not in the church in the world. And it is there that we are to display our unity. Remember what Jesus said to us in John 13, the world will know who you are by running from them. Oh yeah, those are the Christians that are running from us. They hate us. And that's not what you're supposed to be known for. The world will know who you are by what? The love you have for one another. Now where are they supposed to see that, by the way? You're hoping they'll show up here on Sunday morning and see you say, no, 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 let me get the door for you. Let's <laughs> see, we're loving one another. <laughs> no. That's the, in order for the world to see the love that you and I, that we have for one another, we have to be in the world. Now, there's, there's a host of things we would need to talk about in reference to that, and I know you may have some questions in that, but let's, that's, that's what we do in community. Let's hash that out. But it means that we're serving and loving our neighbors. It means that we are in places where there is need. It means that we are able to celebrate uh, and throw some of the best parties and invite some of our friends who don't quite know what all this is about. And so we are called to walk together in the world And here comes the easy part, in a humble and gentle manner. And that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means, and we'll get to that. That reflects the victory and reign of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're called to do, right? There's no no rocket science to the mission of the church. But but what we do have to figure out is how do we do that uh, in, in a local context? How do we, Christ community, do that when we're a regional church? you got people who live essentially almost an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half apart across the spectrum. They're probably not going to do a ton of community together on those, those ends of the spectrum, but how can they develop community in, 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 in pockets and places where they are and serve in the various places? That's why we don't place an overemphasis on Kennesaw or Ackworth alone, right? Um, but, but this is where it, it, once we do have a building, that's going to be kind of our missional outpost. Right? So we'll want to be very involved in Kennesaw proper, but not ignoring the rest of the things that need to be done in other places, right? And so that's where it becomes important that you not be building-centric. If you become, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing some things at times, I'm like, mm, oh, we have a building, we'll be able to have, well, what's preventing you now? It's not a building that prevents us from doing any of the things that God has called us to do missionally. You may have to do it on a smaller scale, right? Maybe there'll be no paid staff to clean up after you. Maybe childcare won't be provided. It may not be when we have a building either, by the way. Uh, and so, so we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of you can do all of those things right now, 
And even when we do have a building, it'll still be in Kennesaw, and we can't put it on wheels and move it around like a giant blow-up castle or something. Not a bad idea. It's probably a cheaper option. Uh, and so... Uh, <laughs> Suddenly, so it looks like the tabernacle kind of going around. And that's, I'm sorry. And so, and so uh, you're still going to need to serve in the communities where you live, right? You're still going to need to be a neighbor to your neighbors who may say, I'm not going to that building. I don't care what it looks like architecturally. I don't care what events you have there. I know what that is. And so it's important that we recognize that the calling is in the world. And the calling is for us to do those things together, and the calling is for us to do it in a humble and gentle man- manner that reflects who Jesus is, not in our own strength, but because of all that Christ has already done for us. So let me ask you this. What impact, think about this for a second, what impact does the unity within the church have on its witness in the world? Do you know any unbelievers? If you do, you ought to ask them, hey, what do you think about the church and just unity? Just th- I'm going to throw you a softball, unity. Now, just because they have an opinion doesn't make them right, correct, right? And, and sometimes the news is worse than it really is, right? Like everything, we're always going to kind of gravitate toward the worst possible news. That's always going to get the most play. It's not as if there's headlines that come out of the PCA, yet again, PCA, people prayed together and showed unity. That's not going to be a headline. People are looking for something else, other stories. I can tell you from being there, there was some divisive stuff, but there was also some stuff of great encouragement and unity that we were able to come together on. But that's, isn't that going to be true of any group of people? If everybody agreed to the same thing, you won't start checking the Kool-Aid. And so, and so unity does matter, Right? Uh, And the world witnesses it in how we love each other. Now, let me ask you this. Does loving each other mean there's no conflict? You who are married, you who have children, you children who have parents, which is, you got to, right? You brothers and sisters, is there any such thing as love without conflict? What did, what did it cost Christ to love you and me? The single darkest and most cosmic and thorough conflict that this, this world will ever know. The return is not conflict. Do you understand? When Christ returns, there's no battle. It's declarative. He comes and says, it's over. And so it's important that we recognize that love, loving one another, is going to be, is going to evidence conflict. And in fact, one of the greatest ways in which the world will know who we are is how we fight toward each other, not against each other. How we are eager, as the text is going to tell us here in just a few moments, for unity. To be eager for it means you, you got to fight for it. We give up so easy, Right? We, we, we give up on each other so easy, and I get it. We've been talking about this quite a bit. I get it. So how many of you work a job that you're like, it is so easy, I, I should pay them to let me work there? Anna, no, you, I know you don't tell the truth. You work for the PCA. <laughs> uh, and my hand's just up for an example. <laughs> uh, not, not, this is not an affirmation. Don't take a picture of this. All right, so, so how many of you, uh, where you live, you're like, look, where I live, uh, the people I live with, it is so easy. I, I, should, I should pay them t- to let me live there. Again, purely for example, as what a raised hand would look like. How many of you would say that just life, cutting the grass, uh, keeping up with, the, with, 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 with your home, keeping up with your car, keeping up with your uh, signing up for classes, keeping up with any of these things. How many of you say, man, so easy. Just keeping up. With, I love keeping up with stuff. I, mean, I can't wait for the grass to grow just enough where I got to cut it. And if you, if you believe that, I want to talk to you. I've got a job for you. Right? All right, so here, so what did I just, how many of your hours 
in days that I just described. So I completely understand, all of them, by the way. So I completely understand when you come to church and I'm up here telling you it's work and suffering and, and you're going to have to cultivate and you're going to have to try, you're like, I mean, isn't there a church with a really famous guy that just tells us we can have our best life now and it doesn't have to be hard <laughs> and suffer? And, and we may all get to go, I mean, may, we may all get to go to heaven on that? I, I get it. Or if we say, if we say hey, if, if you want community to our church, you're, you're going to have to work for it. It's not going to be easy. Because we're, we're not going to make sure you've got 45 different things to choose from uh, and wear out a bunch of volunteers and create all these resources and things just so you can choose maybe a couple of them and us still be at the same place. And, and maybe you say, yeah, but there's, there's churches that somehow they do that. They have, they've got small groups on Friday at 2 a.m., and there's like 14 different ones of them, and their, their gender, their age, their birth dates, their uh, zodiac sign. It's amazing, right? God bless those churches. I, I, I don't know how they do that, but that's well, not where we are right now, and I don't know that we'll, we're ever going to get there. And I understand, I understand that that. We say the Christian life, it is. It is work. I just ask you, what, what, what does the Bible say in reference to that? What have we heard from First and Second Peter? What have we heard from the Gospel of John? What have we heard from Ephesians even? So we, we ain't even gotten into the hard part of Ephesians yet. That's what we're fixing to track into. That's why I'm kind of trying to hold off for a second, give you guys a break. The Bible says the Christian life, it is work, but it's good work. And by comparison, this yoke, Christ's yoke, is easier than the alternative, which is, has eternal consequences. And I understand that, like I said, for you to hear there's one more thing for you to think about and do in any given week. I, I didn't write it, and, and I'm with you sometimes, but that's why God is so good. There's so much good in this. That's why before Paul ever tells you what you might have to do or think about, he has spent three chapters exploding with theology and the indicatives of God's love for you. Let's not forget that. That's why he pauses and he prays. Notice he doesn't pray that you'd have the strength to do did you notice that from last week? He prays that you have the strength to enjoy the love of God. To comprehend it in such a way that it fills you. I haven't seen this movie. Uh, and for those of you who are like, man, this guy's going soft on us. Uh, the Greatest Showman. Uh, I haven't seen it. However, I have watched two videos that were part of the Greenlight Project um, where the cast sings it together for the first time. And there's two songs in particular that I think are brilliantly written. The first is called This Is Me. Who's seen the movie? Greatest Showman. Yeah, so if, if you haven't paid real close attention to the lyrics, I, I don't know who wrote it, but it is, it is close to New Heavens, New Earth type stuff. Uh, this Is Me is one song, and then the other is, is um, uh, From Now On. And so... Uh, the lady who sings, if you've seen the film, it's the bearded lady who sings This Is Me, but this is her singing it really for the first time with people. And I don't know about you, there, there are transcendent moments where it just feels like the curtain pushes back for a second. If you watch that video, you will witness transformation, not, not on the full eternal scale, but just what's possible in this world in terms of beauty. She starts singing, and, and she had never stepped out from behind, behind the, the lectern, but she pushes it down, and she steps out. And when she steps out and starts singing, the place dang near catches fire. And we were watching it last night, and we're all tearing up. Even Rhett, who's like, got mad at me, he's like, he ain't cried in 40 years, and he's like 32 or something. And so, I don't worry about the math, just trust me. And so... And so she starts singing, and they, they, they launch in, and, and we're all going, this is what church should look like. That when the message gets rolling, and the message essentially of that, this is me, is that we are glorious, and that the, these words can't be hurtful to us anymore. This pronouncement of brokenness, 
And I mean, you know, Hugh Jackman's crying, Wolverine's crying. Uh, well, well, he had a nasal surgery, uh, and so when, when it's his turn to sing from now on, which actually is a brilliant song too in terms of his, the lyrics and so forth, and he's not supposed to sing because he's got 80 stitches in his nose. And so he, all he's supposed to do is stand there. And so they start kind of playing the song, and he, he can't contain himself. Like, he busts the stitches in his nose. He just erupts and starts singing. And again, the place just catches fire. And it is, it's glory. It's like, it is a joy that is just unbelievable. And would that, man, would it, I, I would love it if that would, I get it, we're introverts and likelihood's a little low here, but, uh, you know, if, 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 if there would be more enough of a spirit that if somebody stumbled in here, they would go, wait, if nothing else, these people believe it. Uh, these people believe it. It has caught fire in them. And so before we start trying to do anything, we've got to remember all that good that God has done. So now that you've got that in place... I'm actually going to pray for us. I know you're thinking, that's the introduction. We're in trouble. Yeah, we were in trouble when I got up here. Let's pray. Father, thank you that there is all of that firm, firm, firm foundation in Christ, that your love for us has been so beautifully expressed in and through the person and work of Christ, the descending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the indwelling of both the Spirit and Christ and, and your fullness, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would grant us the opportunity to bear witness and hear of such glorious tales that the battle is not lost. Christ is victorious. He does reign. He did ascend and take captive death and sin and has been humiliated and come back and, and, and granted to us all these great gifts. He came and he ascended again. Now, thank you. We are exalted because he was humiliated and exalted. Thank you that we never have to walk the valley that he walked. We'll never know and taste of death in the way that we would have had he not done that, had he not redeemed us. So help us. As we now hear Paul say to us, there's some stuff you need to do. Help us hear it in the right key. Based on the firm foundation of all that needed to happen, before we could even entertain what it is you're asking us to do. In Christ's name, amen. All right, if you would turn to uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. And as you're turning there, I do want to read this quote from Timothy Gombus because I just love the way he uses the language of imagination. Listen to this. He says, in Ephesians 4, 1, Paul begins his turn toward exhortation. Exhortation and imperative are, are the same words. To this point... He has narrated, listen to this, narrated God's triumph in Christ and has spoken about how that triumph is embodied in his own life. Remember, he had talked about he's a prisoner of the Lord and how that's not kept him from being able to enjoy the things of God. He says, now he turns to the church, helping us imagine. I want to pause there for a second. One of the things we need to grow in is our imagination, our sacred imagination, our ability to see the possibilities of redemption, to be the kind of people who look at circumstances and say, this does not have to remain this way. This present darkness can be pierced through with light. This suffering and hurt will not always remain. And we can begin even now, between the now and the not yet, to redeem and to see things change for the glory of our God. But we need, we need a sacred imagination because we just can't see it on our own, can we? And so, it's, as he goes on to say, uh, that helps us imagine how we are to initiate performances of God's triumph in our local settings. Now, if that makes you a little uncomfortable, it's not that it's, it's acting in the sense of hypocrisy. It is, ambassador, as ambassadors of reconciliation, we are to show the world this is what this could look like. 
And if we, as an institution and community of people, just look like any other Kiwanis club or group of people who can't get along or group of people who can't seem to agree on the majors and want to major on the minors, then what are we doing? Unfortunately, we're not in a, don't, don't hear that as a backhanded, oh, what's going on behind the scenes? No, none of that's going on, and I don't want it to go on. But we have to be diligent to keep those little foxes out of this vineyard, right? So he goes on to say, he stresses the centrality of the unity for the church. He exhorts his readers to make every effort to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is something that churches are to pursue zealously, becoming, listen, cultures of unity and reconciliation under the lordship of Jesus. Amen? Mm-mm. Y'all tried. You, you did. We got to do better than that. Is, that. is that not worthy of amen? That, that God says your church can do something that the world needs desperately. Like you all can be a balm of Gilead. Amen? Yeah, because if you ain't stronger than that, let's just let's call it. Let's go watch that YouTube video of the greatest showman stuff. Which sadly, that, that's not going to get it. So, remember all the good that must come before we think the first thing about what we're to do. So now we're going to hear from Paul the standard for how to walk, walk out the Christian life in the world. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, it's really important that we recognize the therefore and why it's therefore. Now, it could be that we could easily say, well, yeah, it's therefore because of the previous three chapters. And that's, yes, all of those truths that occur, all of that grace and peace must be in place before you begin to think about your calling. If God doesn't do all of that, you don't have strength enough to do any of this. Is that, are we clear on that? And so more locally, though, He's pointing to what has served as our benediction. Listen again at what it says, since it won't, we're changing benedictions this Sunday. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, right? So, so the glory of God must be displayed in and through the church. That is non-negotiable. In the church and in Christ. In Christ, it's a finished work. It's not up for grabs. But the church should always be asking itself, are we, with what we are doing, in any, anything that we do, are we glorifying God in Christ in the world? And he goes on to say that this has an impact throughout all generations, forever and ever. So it's important that we think generationally as well, correct? So, so he's saying, because of God's glory, he says, I therefore, and he reminds them, I am a prisoner, not of Caesar, not of Rome, for the Lord. Urge. Now, what does urge mean? Is that to kind of be like, hey, guys, be better. No, 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 urge has some unction to it. Urge, he is speaking uh, from authority. Though he is a prisoner of the Lord, he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is one of the heads of the church. He ain't trying to flex on them, but they need to remember that. So when he urges us, this isn't casual, right? This is critical. He says, I urge you to walk. Now, what does that mean? That means live out. That means as you go, right? Remember, Jesus says something kind of interesting in the Great Commission. He says, as you go, do what? Y'all got to know. First lady says, make disciples. Is that true? 
We got another theologian in here? Yeah, that's right. We, we need to be making disciples as we go. Right? So, that, that's, so is that something that just happens? Like I was sitting at the coffee shop reading the other day. I'm pretty sure somebody like looked over, saw the cover of the book. It was on the Holy Spirit by Michael Horton. I'm pretty sure they became a Christian. I don't know. No, that's not how it works. No, that's not a bad thing necessarily to read a book at a coffee shop, clearly. <laughs> I do that quite a bit. And so, so uh, but at some points, you've got to develop relationship. This, as we go, this walking means to, to be in contact with the world, our neighbors, our friends, our family, right? So he says, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So yet again, much like with Adam and Eve, they are given work to do, right? Remember, Adam and Eve were handed the garden, not as finished product. They were handed the garden as raw material to make better than even God had made to that point. And so they were to extend it so his glory was to fill the world. Well, that work didn't cease because they messed up. Christ, the second Adam, makes it possible for us to do the kind of work that Adam and Eve were called to in an even better way. In fact, Jesus said, you're going to do more than I did. I don't know that we take him serious. And so we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, not because of anything in us, right? So that worthiness has already been established. You understand? You've got to go back and read Chapters 1 through 3, if you have any question about what's being said here. The worthiness is because of the, the blessed God who has saved you when you had nothing to offer that salvation. Also notice that it doesn't say anything about the worthiness of the world. They are not to earn our humility. They are not to earn our gentleness. They are to benefit from it because they so desperately need to see the glory of our God. Because, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, the prince of this world has blinded them to it. And if we give them no display, with all of the raw material we've been given, remember what it said in chapter 1, that all of the heavenly blessings are available to us, all of them. Yes? And if all of them are available to... In fact, he's going to double down. He's going to tell us, Christ went up there and made sure we'd have all of them. He's going to unpack that a little bit next week as to what some of those gifts are. But we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. He just told us in 20 that the fullness of the power of God that does more than we can ask or think, that dwells in us. So why? Why would we think it has anything to do with us or the world in terms of worthiness? We need to walk in a manner worthy of all of that treasure to which we have been indwelt and entrusted. And we need to recognize we've been given work to do. You have not been called to survive. I know some of you feel like it. Right? You have kids of certain ages. Last week, I was in survival mode, uh, and, and I understand, but that can't be the totality of our existence. It can't be just this rushing about reacting. No, we have been set free to be proactive, to be thoughtful, to look at the world and be able to see where the needs are and rise to meet them just as Christ has risen to meet us. Right? And so we're to walk in a manner worthy of that calling to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And he gives us a couple things which he might have used some easier words, but he didn't. He says, with how much humility? All. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we know what the word humility means in Bible terms. Was it a humble thing for Jesus to fashion a bullwhip with his own hands? 
and to go into the temple and turn over the tables of the money changers in the outer courts. Was that a humble thing for him to do? And declare this should be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves? Do you have any idea how much humility it takes to, to risk all that? To stand up in Luke chapter 4 and read from Isaiah 61 to tell them it had happened in their hearing. And then when he saw, no, you're not understanding what I'm saying. He showed them the depth of their own depravity and the racist nature of their own heart when he tells them, no, let me remind you that God has healed both the widow at Zarephath, who's a Canaanite, and Naaman the Syrian. And you remember how they reacted. They were like, oh, thank you so much for pointing out that we don't get it. No, no, no. They tried to kill him. Do you have any idea how much humility it takes to say something knowing how much it's going to cost you? He knew the fullness of the cost. I often don't. You often don't. You know how hard it is to go to somebody and say, you are, you are in sin and you will perish in your sin and I love you and I, I, this has to change and draw the lines that the Lord has called to be drawn around the things that he has said are his. I remember one time a guy named Tim Harden confronted me, uh, and, uh, and, and my son was about nine or 10, and, and he, he just didn't like the way I re responded to Devin. Devin was at that phase where if he, if he thought he, he'd, get, he'd get a laugh, he would ride it to the shore and beyond to the next continent. And so he just was wearing it out, and I was like, okay. And Tim and I were trying to have a conversation, and I was sharp with Devin. And Tim said to me, he said, I, brother, I love you, but the way you talk to your son, it's not okay. There's something in it that, 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 that's not, it's just not, it's not loving. I was a Christian at the time, and, and I was immediately grieved. And I, I am so thankful for Tim Harden, and it, it, it probably radically transformed my relationship with my son that got more difficult due to another set of circumstances that had I continued sharply would maybe be a lot worse. Praise God for Tim Harden's courage and humility to confront somebody who, by the way, you've got to know is fun to confront. And here's the thing about me, and let me say this. If you're going to break up with our church at some point, I've had a couple of these conversations as of late, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not uh, fragile. I'm not. You can give it to me all the way 100. You can deliver it full blast, tell me what all it is, uh, and don't, don't put me in a weird position to where you're kind of dancing around it and saying, it's not really you, it's us, but we're not even going to try, so we're leaving because you guys are, it's not, it is you, but it's, wait, us? Never mind. Yeah, I, I don't, right? I mean, we, we, we act like it's humble to lie. No, it is not. It is not more humble to lie. It is not more humble to protect someone's feelings from the truth. Now, it's also not, it's not humble to give it lava hot either with no kind of consideration for edification and those kind of things. But I just want you to understand from a biblical perspective, humility is not to, to be mealy-mouthed or a pushover or passive-aggressive or any of those things. Actual humility means you love somebody enough to call it when you see they are going astray and doing something destructive. And the same is true for gentleness. Biblical gentleness is sometimes a firm hand. Not a, not a backhand, but a firm hand that holds you fast and says, I love you too much to let you go. Think about the passage in Jude which says, snatch them from the fire, hating even the, flesh defile, or the clothing defiled by the flesh. That is humble and gent some of the humblest and gentlest work you'll, you'll ever see in your life. We've got it so upside down that we think it's, it's to be so meek and mild as to barely be able to be heard. Now, true humility, true gentleness is what Jesus did for us. When he would confront the religious leaders with some of the harshest language you've ever heard, right? Remember what he said to the folks who were trying to keep the children from him. 
I think it's the harshest passage in all the Bible because it's so descriptive. He said, listen, any one of you lead one of these kids astray, it'd be better for you to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the ocean or sea. That's strong. But do you know how humble and gentle that really is in the scheme of things? To warn of something that could be so destructive to the future of the church? Do you know who he had in mind when he said that? Us, the future generations. Because if it gets off track, if it gets lost, we're not here. So Christ was the perfect example of gentleness and humility. So look to him, look to his character uh, for what it means to be humble and gentle in the world, but also ask the question of yourself. Put yourself in community in such a way that you ask, hey, is this, is this, is this humble and gentle? And, have, and wrestle with that. Let iron sharpen iron here. You can't do it in a vacuum by yourself. And it goes on that we would do that in an ongoing fashion. Why would you need patience if it's just one and done? Why would you need patience if it were going to be easy? You're going to need patience because you're going to fail and they're not going to receive you and you're going to want to scream at them, I'm being humble. And then you're lost. You've lost the argument. Right? But he's telling us straight away this is going to happen in ongoing fashion. He goes on to say, bearing with one another in what quality? In love. Which is the same word that he said you're going to need the strength of the Holy Spirit to help you comprehend in his prayer previously. And if that weren't near enough for you to keep up with, he says you need to be eager and this language, again, is active. It's proactive. We need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because this is what Christ died for. Remember, he died to bring down the dividing wall, not to raise it up. And too often, we are eager to contradict. We are eager to fight. We are eager to break fellowship we are eager to gossip. We are eager to critique. My hand is raised. Yet what we ought to be is eager. Not, and again, this is not cheap unity. This isn't, well, I'm just not, not going to say anything because, you know, Cameron said we've got to be unity. That's fake unity. No, the, the most unified thing you could do is when you are bothered by something, you've processed, you prayed on it, is to actually deal with it. Say something. Work it out. Yeah, but, you know, if I try to say something to you, you're going to say something back. Yeah. <laughs> kind of my job. Uh, and, and, and so we, we have to work through that. And again, we, get to, we should do that where the world can see. In places where our neighbors can bear witness to, wait a minute, these folks, they straight love each other. They love each other in a way that's active and, and kind of like kung fu. I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but, but it is an active and, and we, I mean, I was thinking of colliding anyway. But, but sometimes it's going to bring us into a proximity with one another. It's going to be repelling and, and we're going to collide, are we not? And sometimes we're going to wonder if, if the thing that we're all worried about is, is really, is it the end of fellowship? Is there, an easier, is there an easier place to go and do this than there? It better fits me personally. And so, what he's calling us to is utterly impossible. You're not going to be humble and gentle in a biblical way, one wit or iota for any length of time, in patience, enduring in love, without all, and I mean all, all caps, all that Christ has done for you. If you don't keep returning to that, if you try to do it in your own strength and you don't every day in some manner or form confess, Lord, I am neither humble nor gentle. I am not enduring without you. Remind me of my firm foundation, Lord. You gotta return to your theology. You gotta return to the truth of what Christ has done for you in the indwelling of the Spirit. Amen?
You can't do it in your own strength. Now, since I am in power up here, I'm going I'm to audible. I'm going to end the sermon here. Because I think you've had enough. And I think that's enough for us to think about. By ending it, I'm going to read this next quote. I'll ask the question. And we'll make sure the rest of the material gets in uh, at, at some point. Uh, we, we will not rob you of the fullness of Ephesians, I can guarantee you. But I just think that, that that's enough for us to try to meditate on and wrestle with. And so uh, we're actually going to change. I'm, I'm calling another audible uh, in some measure. And this is not anti-Presbyterianism, by the way, to call audibles uh, uh, in this fashion. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, Jonathan will let me know if it is at some point. But we're going to change the weekly confession from Ephesians 1 to this. Because we're not going to make it through the rest of Ephesians if, if we don't continue to remind ourselves of the need to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and gentleness and humility and with all the ones that you'll hear about next week, right? And so um, uh, we'll be shifting gears a little bit within that. And so uh, uh, look for that next week. Uh, I didn't have time to do it this week, and I didn't want to call Josh at 6.30 this morning and say, hey, I want to change something. Uh, that's just not nice. Uh, listen to what Stephen Fowle says about these three verses. He says, although Paul will give more direct and concrete prescriptions to the Ephesians in the following verses and chapters, the task of walking worthily, listen, always entails the act of seeing the fit between one's actions or possible actions and some set standard. To do this, the Ephesians and all other believers will need to develop a set of habits and dispositions. All right, there's just some habits and dispositions that we have that don't lend themselves to, to us being humble and gentle. I've talked to you all before about my sometimes difficulty behind the wheel of a car. The moments where I get in the car and I pause and I say, Lord, I am, <laughs> I am, feel demon-possessed at times behind the wheel, I, which is not true. It's not possible for a believer to be demon-possessed. But uh, I, I just, I, I, I don't respect this gift that you've given me. Help me in humbleness and gentleness to not care about all this stuff because it's not going to matter. My wife is always like, why do you care? And she's right. Why do I care? What's a seven-car accident going to prove? <laughs> that I was right? Mm, that's costly, right? You don't get to decide those things. So on the times where I've had the habit and the disposition to pray, honestly, it's gone different. In the moments that I don't, and Rhett still loves me, he saw me pull this off twice yesterday, it was slightly justified in both occasions, but effective in neither. Uh, and, so, and so it's important that we develop these habits and dispositions. I know some of you are like, he's our pastor? Yeah, I, yeah, it's way worse than you know. Uh, um, and I don't, I'm not making light of that. But I also want you to know that I'm not superhuman. And I need the same Jesus you do. And this isn't hierarchical. He goes on to say, uh, you got to develop these habits and dispositions. Cultivating such habits and dispositions will enable the Ephesians to perceive themselves, their world, and the standard to which they aspire, thus to walk worthily in a manner that will lead them to recognize some actions as fitting or conforming to the standard and others as not. So what he's saying is, you need to be taught how to see. Because we don't see this naturally. It doesn't just come to us. What comes natural to us is sinful. So what, what helps you best reflect on the manner in which you walk in the world as called of Christ? If you can't answer that question, you need to figure it out. Whether, whether it's, here's some possible answers. Whether it's a daily prayer and confession and humility of your own brokenness and inability to actually do these things, and need for the Holy Spirit, need for the reminder of the fullness of the gospel, or it's the Lord's Day Sabbath on which you reflect back, not on your sin, but God's goodness and how that empowers you and how that can set you up well for the week to come. 
There's any number of ways that you can go about this. But you need to do it. It doesn't come natural. And I, I know it sounds like one more thing for us to worry about. No, it's actually the same thing. I've just said it a bunch of different ways in the five years I've been here. Are you eager? And this is important. Are you eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace and the power of the Holy Spirit in the church? Is that an eagerness to you? Is that something that you recognize that how you, how you uh, participate in worship today, how you treat those who are visiting, how you treat those who've been here for a while, evidences your eagerness. To ignore people or to say, because you've had one bad interaction with somebody, I'm not dealing with them anymore. I don't like those people. They're hard to deal with. <laughs> I don't know if you've met humans. Uh, they're hard to deal with. In all forms and fashions, right? Some seem easier, easier to deal with than others. Those are just the people who are kind of like us and make us feel better about ourselves. That may not be helpful, actually. And so we need to grow in an eagerness to see the church, the bride, high and lifted up and for God's glory to be displayed therein. Amen? And with that, I'm going to pray. And Josh and the musicians can come forward. Father, thank you that you don't ask us to do something you have not empowered us to do. That you don't call us to a life that is heavy yoked and burdensome. Though it, it sounds like, oh wow, how, how are we ever going to be humble and gentle? Well, we look to our Savior. We are reminded of the great gifts that we've been given. We can be humble because there's nothing left to gain in this world. It's all fruit thereafter. You've given us our eternal lives. We can't get more than that. So in great humility, we can give away what you have given to us. We can offer up again and again and again because you are lavish and there's no end to the source that we have in the heavenly places. We can be gentle because you, Lord, were gentle to us in saving us and filling us with the Spirit and calling us into the work that you're doing in this world. God, we can be gentle because the war is over, actually. We can be gentle because you do the saving work you do the heart change. We don't have to change someone's mind or heart. We just need to make sure that they get an opportunity to see all this glory and the results of reconciliation. Help us walk in that. Help us be a church that is eager to maintain unity, who love each other well, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.